0: Are you interested in a life in ministry? Are you passionate about the church and how it functions? Do you not get enough of listening to pastors on Sundays? Well, you're in the right place. This is Under the Fig Tree, a podcast for people who are interested in church work. I'm Ben.
1: And I'm Micah. We are two pastors who work at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. Join us as we dive into the vocation of pastoral ministry, dig into scripture, and occasionally talk about other stuff like our unquestionable love for the Dallas
0: Cowboys. And of course, we'll be talking about Star Wars. We'll talk to guests about doctrine, traditions, and what makes someone a good candidate for the pastoral office besides being called by God. And we may just help you figure out if this pastor or deaconess stuff is for you.
1: Again, this is Under the Fig Tree from Concordia Seminary
0: in St. Louis. Hey, so great to be back on Under the Fig Tree podcast. So, Micah, what's, what's going on in the world for you? How, how about them Cowboys? <laughs> how about them
1: Cowboys? I don't know if you did that intentionally or not. Uh, if, you, if you took some time to learn. That's, that's a, a I, Cowboys I'm just asking phrase.
0: really innocently. I don't know anything about sports.
1: Uh, you know, uh, as, as we, I've said before, sometimes there are good years, sometimes there are bad years. When I was a kid in the 90s, It felt like, you know, a decade of greatness, uh, three Super Bowl championships, and and you think your team is going to be the greatest forever. And the Cowboys haven't been to the Super Bowl since uh, 1995-96 season, and I think since then they've maybe won. Four playoff games <laughs> it, it might be less than that maybe, Or maybe five I'd have to go back and check But long story short This is one of those years where um, Their division is so bad That if, if they won the rest of their games This season They could go to the playoffs Now I don't see that happening uh, and And that wouldn't be a good thing Because then they would get a playoff game To get destroyed by a team That's much better than them for sure And then you get stuck in the middle of the next NFL draft and you miss out on players that could be uh, franchise altering. So my hope and call it what it is, I'll still be a Cowboys fan uh, next season until my last day. Uh, They are my favorite sports team of all time Uh, that they they just do poorly for the rest of the season because there's no real hope and get a high draft pick and hopefully add a person or or trade that high draft pick for more draft picks and add a, other key. They, they have a lot of gaps in their team. And, it, you know, it's just one of those things. It's such a, a basketball. You can have three really good players and dominate the league. You, you can't really do that in the NFL. You know, basketball is five on five. Football is 11 on 11. It's a little more dynamic. And so it's just, yeah, it's, it's just, you you come up with excuses, you, you, you stutter when you talk about him, you try to find a silver lining in all of this, but it is a bad year. <laughs> so tell me again why you're a cowboys fan. How did that happen? Also like well, it, it's just the Cowboys were cool in the early nineties. It's just true. Like you don't yeah. have to know football. The Cowboys were like the team of the NFL in the early nineties when was I was. Was that really... Terrell Owens? That's he, wasn't he not, a cowboy? He was a cowboy, but he's okay. not like He's not a Dallas Cowboy. Like
0: I'm. Oh oh, just oh. Honest. All right. He's, See that was that was about as much as I know about the Cowboys, right there.
1: <laughs> the Cowboys were Terrell Owens' third team. Okay. Like Michael Irvin. Now, now that's a Dallas Cowboy. Troy Aikman, Emmitt Smith, those are the Cowboys uh, of, that I fell in love with. And I, I, again, I I still like the Cowboys. Uh, they've had decent teams. They've given me a lot of false hope in recent years. That uh, they were, they were gonna make some some real noise in the playoffs to lose in round one or round two, but it's you know, it's life. It doesn't always go the way you want it to go.
0: That's what I've here, heard. So yeah, what's
1: going on with you, Ben?
0: Well, we're still uh, still watching Mandalorian. So episode six just came out recently, and. That was a really exciting episode because in episode six, spoilers for anybody that hasn't seen Mandalorian, you might want to skip over this part. But uh, if you're listening to this and you're following Mandalorian and you haven't seen it, I, I don't understand. So um, I'm going to be shameless with my with my spoilers. In episode six, we finally see Boba Fett up close and personal. When when I first saw the actor, I said to my sons, "Hey, isn't that the guy that plays?" Jango Fett in the original yeah. uh, early trilogy, and they said, "Yeah, because he plays both Django and Boba Fett." Even his ship is the the right ship. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, ex- exactly. So, so it was fun to to see that. And uh, what I really liked about this Boba Fett character, true to this kind of mercenary uh, persona that he has, he says that he doesn't subscribe to the Mandalorian creed. And it was really interesting. I I had a little conversation with my boys around what does it mean to have a creed and to be someone who subscribes to a creed. That's kind of a foreign concept in our postmodern world, right? Mm -hmm. Where, you know, the the creed of postmodernism is I don't really believe in anything and I'm not loyal to anyone or anything. So even having a football team like the Dallas Cowboys is something that is maybe a little bit uh, foreign to people. Uh, but uh, at any rate, not having a creed, he says, I, I don't subscribe to any creed. He only subscribes basically, basically to the creed of himself. And I, I, I was fascinated by that. But then at the end of the episode, you see that he's really serious about that. He subscribes to uh, his word is his honor. And so though he in some ways is a, a postmodern kind of anti-hero, he doesn't subscribe to the Mandalorian Creed. And yet he he is still a decent person because he subscribes to his own word. Uh, still has to mean something. That's right. the only thing that his career is based on, really. So I, I found that fascinating. The, the episode in and of itself with Grogu getting swiped. Uh, oh no, Am I given you spoilers? Uh, no, I've seen it. I've seen it. Oh, yeah, okay. I'm okay. yeah, 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 I'm with you. I'm with you. So we're, we're watching a lot of Mandalorian. That's been a lot of fun. We're also playing a lot of Minecraft these days. And so I am with my sons big into Minecraft survival mode. So we we. Just recently figured out how to start a LAN world. Uh, oh, so yeah. we're deep we're deep into nerdery and geekery <laughs> at this point. So we figured out how three of us can play, since we're all on the same Wi-Fi, We can all play in one world. So we all have our our separate devices, and so we started this survival world. And we progressed to the point where we beat the Ender Dragon. And that was like a huge thing that my boys had never even done. To beat the Ender Dragon, it took us a lot of hours. Minecraft is definitely the hardest video game I've ever played. Mm-hmm. And there's still so much more to do in that video game. So it's fascinating because it's it's not just your typical Mario, Super Mario Brothers 1, which I grew up on in 1985 where you just go from the left side of the screen to the right side of the screen and then jump on the little pole and down you go and you finish the level. Minecraft is a whole sandbox and I love it. As we're
1: talking about Minecraft, we're talking about our kids and and them learning and growing in stature. Uh, Today, uh, we're looking at a passage from Scripture, Luke chapter 2, verses 41 through 52, where we see Jesus as a boy uh, in the temple learning. Uh, And so we're going to read that passage for you and then, uh, you know, just chat about it for a little bit. So here we go, starting at verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey
0: Thanks, be, Thanks to God. be to God. What are your first impressions on this passage, Ben? Yeah, the, the first impressions, and I think this is important for how we read all of Scripture, but especially the Gospels, is this this these passages don't first and foremost tell us about us and about what we're supposed to do. Mm. They tell us about who God is, who His Son, Jesus, is, and what He has done. So... So what I, I the first thing that I, I think about when I'm reading this is I'm asking the question, what does this tell me about Jesus? And it ties together a whole bunch of things that we maybe know about Jesus from other readings of the Gospels that that we have done, or specifically from the Gospel of Luke. So we know that one big thing is Jesus is a teacher. Throughout his public ministry, he's teaching people, actually in just in the Gospel of Luke in chapter four, one of the first things that Jesus does is he goes into the Capernaum synagogue and he's teaching people. And they're it says they're amazed by his authority and his teaching. Yeah. And it's and it's scriptural teaching. He's specifically diving into this old testament passage in, in Isaiah, and he's unpacking it in a way that people are like, whoa, this 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 dude is different, right? Right. So evidently he had been spending time from the time he was 12 years old at least up until his public ministry immersed in the scriptures and what we know by that is the Old Testament right the gospels right. Of, of course had not been written so so the the Old Testament scriptures Jesus is just immersed in those
1: for God to become one of us already incredible but also to put himself in a state where he humbles himself to be to be taught by rabbis in the temple, yeah. the, the, the depths that he's willing to go to be one of us, to fully be one of us. I mean, you can see it in, in a ton of places throughout Scripture. But, but just—and and every time I read it, I'm just like, man, what an incredible Savior we have. One like no other. <laughs> and I, I'm just always—I'm just, you know, uh, just forever thankful— that we have this caring, loving God who is willing to go through such lengths to show us the way. Because it's not just Jesus learning. Jesus learning in the temple is creating a paradigm for us, that that, the things that he was learning in that temple weren't just important for him as the Messiah. They're also important for us as God's children to to grow in and learn in in whatever capacity we can.
0: Yeah, so so Jesus—so God— Incarnating himself, becoming one of us, has implications then for for how we live. Uh, but I'm I'm intrigued by this question of who who is Jesus, and uh, you mentioned his his uh, nature as God and man, and I think that's part of what's going on here in the the early part of Luke, especially for people who don't know who Jesus is. Certainly, uh, when he's 12 years old. Most people don't know, don't or don't understand who he fully is. yep and and then also the certainly the readers of Luke's Gospel, I think the idea that Luke writes in the first place is to tell this Theophilus about who Jesus really is. And so the idea is the reader may not fully understand everything there is to know about Jesus. So, what i one of the things that i think luke is trying to do in in luke 3 is we begin to see jesus on the one hand he's he's obedient to his parents because he is after all son of mary and son of joseph yep. he's he submits himself to them and that that's part of the human experience right we we were once upon a time uh youths, gangly youths, and we had uh, lots of experience in not obeying our parents, and we could probably tell our <laughs> listeners all kinds of really funny stories about, uh, maybe even tragic stories, about times that we didn't obey our parents. So we know that's part of the human experience, and yet Jesus is is wanting to say something in this passage that is really important for us to hear, and that's didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? Right. Which which alerts us to wait a minute. I thought Joseph was his father, and in chapter three we're gonna hear John the Baptist saying, "Hey, pay attention to this guy," and then at the end of chapter three we get the genealogy of Jesus, which eventually says uh, at the very end Jesus is the Son of God. Right. And so it's this. Jesus is son of Mary and Joseph, but also son of God.
1: In his earthly ministry uh, recorded in the Gospels for us, he had a lot of things to accomplish. So being in the temple, learning, growing uh, according to his human nature uh, is something that he had to do with his earthly parents, Joseph and and Mary, Mary also being the mother of God, uh, was also important because uh, Jesus was sinless, and him being sinless (laughs) and dying for us is what accomplishes our salvation. And and so you see right from the beginning of the Gospels, all of this purpose in his life, the things that he's doing right from the very beginning, and and it just gets unfolded, unpacked more and more throughout the Gospels, uh, then fully, not more fully unpacked in in the, uh, the epistles, and then even beyond that, the, the church continues to, like Jesus, to try to grow in knowledge and stature uh, so, that, so that you don't have to be a world class exegete to understand these texts. There are people who have done this work for you uh, throughout church history that have tried to bring this to a level to where we can all understand. Uh, like, again, like Jesus when he's 12, you know, you don't start with PhD level theology uh you, you start with with breast milk like a child the simple answer to every sunday school answer being jesus right which yep. which is fully sufficient <laughs> right if if your answer is jesus you're right <laughs> exactly uh but then you know we we get into to more complicated things and we get to understand more and more and and you just get to appreciate again who god is and what he's done for us more and more the more you dive into some of these things
0: yeah, so uh, maybe another connection or another thing that I'm thinking about in this in this uh, passage here is uh, an Old testament reference. we We talked a little bit about that, some Old Testament references in episode one. So here's an Old Testament reference that I think is kind of at play in this in this section. It's from Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi three. Verses 1 and 2. And uh, this is Yahweh or the Lord speaking. He says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So, this the, the idea here this messenger that's coming, uh, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And uh, Jesus says to Mary and Joseph, "Didn't you know that I must be in my Father's house in the temple?" The the temple really features heavily throughout Luke's gospel. So you have you have Jesus visiting the temple and uh, teaching in the temple. And I just noticed that the very last verse of Luke's gospel ends with so after Jesus' uh, crucifixion and his resurrection, which happens very close to the temple, at the end of Luke's gospel, the people of God, the believers in Jesus, those who have come to faith in Jesus in his death and in his resurrection, that he's the, the resurrected Messiah, where are they? At the end of Luke's gospel, it says that they're gathered in the temple. Mm. So, And then at the beginning of Acts, which we know is, is part two of Luke's gospel. It starts off with the disciples in the temple and they're right. waiting right for this gift. And they're, they're choosing, uh, the, their, the replacement of Judas and their, and then the Holy spirit comes upon them. And then it says at the end of chapter two, even that they're still meeting day to day in the temple. And so that the temple In this early part where the temple is still standing before 70 AD, the temple was really important because that was where God had promised that the messenger would show up. And so Jesus showing up in the temple at 12 years old and saying, I must be in my father's house fulfills all kinds of Old Testament promises. And it tells us that part of being in God's presence, which is what the temple was, is being in his word. And we know eventually that uh, the temple is destroyed. And yet Jesus' body is that that temple that endures. Uh, So when we're together with the people of God and we're studying the word of God, we are in the presence of of God, where we are being the temple of God himself. Again,
1: talking about how incredible Jesus is, as God, He's all knowing, but as a human, He denies Himself, His divinity, again, to become one of us. And and what does that mean? What does it look like? In in the Formula of Concord, Article Eight, I got my good old Kolb Wingert edition all marked up from my seminary days. Kind of falling apart, you know.
0: Tell me, tell me what the Kolb Wingert edition is for somebody that may not know. Oh. Yes. What, what this book even is
1: So the book of Concord Of course Written over a few decades In the 16th century uh, Of course it's a collection Of a lot of different writings Begins with the three ecumenical creeds Which, which I've already mentioned That are before the Reformation They're ecumenical right. because they're, they're for the life of the church uh, The Apostles' Creed The Nicene Creed and the Athanasian Creed And then the Reformers uh, began to write things to to help people understand where they were coming from on different things. Of course, the 95 Thesis isn't included in the Book of Concord, but still radically important for how we understand uh, the Church and the life of the Church. And so you have the Augsburg Confession, then you have the Apology to the Augsburg Convention, which Apology means defense. Uh, then you have the small catechism, catechism, the large catechism, and then you have the small articles. And all of these things together, the Book of Concord, uh, are are what we believe teach and confess as a Lutheran church. Uh, but if, if you've ever had a conversation with a person who's Baptist, Catholic, Presbyterian, Episcopalian, or whatever else, and, and you're wondering, some things sound similar, some things sound different. If you really want to know why and where they're different, read your Book of Concord because it's all going to be laid out there for you. You know, I, I did all
0: that, and I, I lost, I lost my place. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, that was that was me messing you up. That was a great explanation though of the Book of Concord and why it's important. I think where you were going was these two natures of Christ, yep. and and uh, you know this this whole passage that we're looking at in Luke two is is asking us begging us to ask some really deep questions about who is jesus so if he's god and man does does he have to learn and and how does that work does does can he improve in his understanding right uh that's really what the book of concord one of the questions that the book of concord is trying to to answer right that's true Is jesus Yep. And and so
1: the formula of Concord split into two sections. One's the epitome, the other solid declaration. Maybe a different podcast will talk about all the different sections of the book of Concord. But if you're looking at the epitome, Article 8, Paragraph 4. Oh, you also asked me about the Kolb-Wangard edition. Well, it's just their translation. And the the cool thing about the Kolb-Wangard edition, in my opinion, not just because Robert Kolb is an esteemed professor here at CSL. um, Oh, and just Beloved by our Synod. I mean, it's yeah. Bob Kolb.
0: <laughs> and and beloved by people outside our Synod. Absolutely. I mean, if, if there's a Lutheran scholar that is known outside of the LCMS, it's probably, uh, that's living today, it's probably Robert Kolb. For
1: sure. I, you know, I, the moment I said that, I felt a little ashamed of myself.
0: <laughs> well, <that's, laughs> you know what? Bob <laughs> Kolb is the most humble, unassuming a charming gentleman, easy going, funny. Yes, and and would probably just prefer to just just call me Bob. That's
1: all of my seminary professors. None of them allow me to call them Doctor anything anymore. Right. right. Um. So the the great thing about the the Kolb wangert edition, if you're into this kind of thing, Augsburg Confession, it was written in German and Latin. German because that was a common language. Latin because that was a formula language, and that's the language that they, that was taken to charles the fifth there we go Uh, my my mind just spaced because i wasn't even prepared to talk about that but and so they they take the time and the language goes from third to second person and it's kind of no third to first person first person in german third person in latin it's just cool to see what was going on you know 500 years ago and how they were operating um Back to the two natures in Christ. So one thing that they talk about explicitly in the Book of Concord and beyond, because it's so important for us to wrap our minds around, because understanding that Jesus is man and God is how our salvation is accomplished, the fact that he's both. Um, And talking about his human nature, you go to the epitome, Article 8, the person of Christ, paragraph 4 says, the characteristics of the human nature are being a bodily creature, being flesh and blood, being finite and circumcised, suffering, dying, ascending, descending, moving from one place to another, suffering from hunger, thirst, cold, heat, and the like; these never become characteristics of the divine nature. Uh, so the two natures are different yet unified in Jesus. How does that work? Well, that's part of the mystery, right? Other than the fact that it it does work. But the point of the matter is is you know some people thought that Jesus wasn't God. And some people thought that Jesus was only God and him moving about the world was kind of illusion that he was just this uh, divine essence appearing to be a man, but not really being a man. But again, we're saying that he is a man, not just he became a man uh, in the incarnation, died as a man, rose in a man, and is now sitting at the right hand of God as a man, as one yeah. of us. And that's why our resurrection is going to be like his. Um Again, the lengths that he was going to be part of us, so that we would be included in his story. Um, fast forwarding a little bit, I'm not going to read the entire uh, article. The you know, Book of the Concord isn't that expensive. Get one and read it. It's just good for you. Fast forwarding in paragraph 11, it says, according to the personal union, he always possessed this majesty in his divinity, and yet dispensed it by his own will with it in the state of his humiliation that's humbling himself to become a man for this reason he grew in stature wisdom and grace before god and other people therefore he did not reveal his majesty at all times but only when it pleased him until he completely laid aside the form of a servant after his resurrection and so when you're looking at this this passage and you begin to wrap your mind why does jesus need to Learn. Why does he need to go to the temple? Why does he need to be a part of a, a human in this way? It, it, it's all for our sake. Yeah. Uh, he 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 left the throne room of God, where he's eternal, where he's God, Creator, ruling for all time, and came to serve us. That is, you'll never hear another story about a God doing something like this. They'll try to make parallels, but there's there's nothing like Jesus. Yeah, uh, it's just it's just so remarkable. And and you just we get to see it really unfold in this text when he's a boy because he because he's a boy and subservient to his parents. He's obeying the fourth commandment.
0: Well, and so here we are, these two boys, maybe not quite boys anymore, boys to men, uh, to throw out an old 90s reference. Uh, Motown. The, you were probably uh, well. You were you're, you're not that much younger than me, so you probably remember Boys to Men. Uh, Boys to Men was a so funny story.
1: Uh, one day I was in the car with my dad, and, and the song Yesterday came on, but it was the Beatles version. And I was like, when is this terrible version come out? I don't think it's <laughs> terrible anymore. I'm a Beatles fan. But like my dad was like, this is the original, and I was like, no, Boys and Men is the original.
0: Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, back in the '90s, the throwback. So, uh, at any rate, you you and I have uh, gone from from being boys ourselves to. Uh, yeah, being being men, uh, we we have serious big boy jobs here at the seminary, and uh, I say that even as my voice cracks, which is just <laughs> awesome. We have um, our own families, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, uh, but but we we had this journey that we went on, right? Yeah. So what you just laid out in in the book of Concord, uh, we we it's taken us pretty deep into theology. And into some pretty specific questions. And you know, I'll be honest, there was a time for me where I didn't love theology. I was, in fact, when I was growing up, I didn't like to read. And in middle school and even in high school, I'll I'll be honest. And Mr. Jordan, if you're listening to this, I I fully confess here and now that there were times in your English class where I did not read the book you assigned me. I, I got the Cliff Notes version, and I'm deeply sorry for that, uh, most of all because I missed out on a great experience. Uh, but But that's just a little bit about me that in my background, I didn't love studying theology. I probably as a boy would not have been found in the temple studying okay. the scriptures, much less would people have been saying about me like they were saying about Jesus, uh, astonished at his teaching and uh, just amazed at how much he he knew. So Mike, I'm interested uh, in hearing a little bit about this journey for you. What was it like to uh, to study here at the seminary uh because our listeners are are hopefully contemplating what might it be what might it mean to be at the seminary what kind of experience would I get uh, so tell us a little bit about your experience at concordia seminary as a student right you know when i when i first got here in all reality
1: um if i was a theologian i was i was just a, a baby theologian by the time i got here at I had taken a couple theology classes at Concordia, Chicago. Uh, so I, I I had used a library version of the Book of Concord. I didn't own my own yet. <laughs> right. I actually, I've actually probably borrowed Dorothy's. My wife is a deaconess. And uh, at, to the point when I got here... A, a much better theologian than me, and there are definitely areas of theology that you know, she's exceptional. That's just the truth. But but you know it was a, a change of pace. You know I got I had a bachelor's degree in chemistry. Um, for my my mind works that way, uh, formulaically, to where math, chemistry, those types of things come to me very naturally, and and chemistry comes to me more naturally. So it's not just science. I I understand science, but chemistry, physics over biology for me even, right? And then, so to prove your knowledge, you, you go to class, you learn some formulas and you sit down and you you plug away at a, a formula, sometimes for two and a half hours for one formula on a take-home test. But but you, you just have a beginning, you work to your end. And, and then now to prove your knowledge and understanding, you have to read and write. Uh, so it's not that I hated reading, but it, it was just a different type of reading. And it really stressed me and really challenged me. Uh, and for me, a tra- the transformation really happened. I, I took the opportunity. I studied abroad. Uh, we have those opportunities through our seminaries to to study somewhere else, in Oberursel in Germany, or in Cambridge, Westfield House in Cambridge, England. And I did the Cambridge one. My wife is from London, and we have family in the UK, so it was it was a good move for us. Um, and and you just get challenged there because you know in the seminary. In Lutheran world, it's all safe. We're all doing the same thing. Right. In uh, Cambridge, they don't they don't believe what we believe. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and, there's and, a so, a small group of them at Westfield House that do, <laughs> but the vast majority of Cambridge, yeah. There's it's a it's a big place.
1: And, and so it, it puts you to your metal. And if you're going to survive there um, and come home Lutheran, you, you really got to cheer yourself up and, and appreciate what we believe, teach, and confess. Um, so it was, it was challenging, uh, you know, but, but gratefully, we talked about one professor here, Robert Kolb, and the plethora of, of knowledge and, and people who are going to walk alongside you for your education is, uh, is just a gift. And I can't think of it any other way. So especially like, say, I, I took some New Testament classes and a couple Old Testament classes there. Academically, it wasn't out of my league. It was just different. Uh, yep. We we read a couple different commentaries that the professors here are, are aware of, but you're not going to teach what those commentaries teach in your congregation. Say, well, maybe you will, but you shouldn't. Um, <laughs> uh, that being said, as you, so, I came here not much of a theologian, but by the time I left, you know, I I never would have understood the the history of the Book of Concord back when I, I first began here. But you know, you just year by year, little by little. You you study you read you reread and I mean I, I my my daily devotion usually contains uh, scripture some of the Book of Concord just to stay sharp because you know theologically there's just so much uh, yeah. scripture has so much to say to us to to assume that you could uh, retain even some of it for a long term without you know uh, reviewing or in going back would be would pretty be pretty assumptuous even to where like say jeff gibbs uh, i mean greek new testament scholar if you ask me world class if you ask other people world class ask him about the old testament he has an idea and he'll say that but he won't presume to be an expert because yeah. he, he studies matthew and that's what he's focused a lot of his life on. Not just Matthew, the New Testament in general. But you, you get what I'm saying. That is, it's this process. And to me, seminary was was teaching me how to be a theologian so that when I graduated, I could be a, a theologian amongst the people that God has called me to. So that I can yep. talk uh, comprehensively to, to people about Jesus. And if they yep. have questions, answer those questions. And if they ask questions that I know, at least— Know how to begin to look for those questions, and so uh, yeah, it's it's a lifelong thing. Once you begin to undertake the the role of ministry and to choose to study theology, it's just understanding that it's, it's forever, right? Yeah. Exactly. How about you, we and and we both came from like an archaic old system where we were still doing quarters. Which well, anyway, it's the the new semester system here. I'm sure is is great. It's actually probably well. Anyway, I probably would have preferred that because it's a little more than what you're used to. But uh, what about you, Ben? We're not too far apart uh, in in our experience of actually going through here and studying it and being students here. But what was it like for you?
0: Yeah. So you know, I told in the last episode about my experience in the Pentecostal church, right? Yeah. So I I was really wrestling with these questions about who is God and especially I was I was wrestling, I remember coming into seminary. So I had finished four years of undergraduate study at Concordia University, Wisconsin, and I had studied languages, Greek and Hebrew and German, and then uh, had studied pastoral ministry as a pre-seminary student. So I, I had a lot of theology and a lot of languages coming into the seminary, but I was still Personally, I was still wrestling with this, this question about who is God and how do we experience God and how do we how do we our experiences when we've had experiences with God. Right. And one of the most influential classes for me at seminary was this this class called systematics. So, uh, it's a systematics is the study of doctrine or the systematic study of the teachings of the church. So systematics incorporated the book of Concord and, uh, the systematics curriculum at that time, systems one, two, and three basically was just a, a very in-depth walkthrough of the three articles of the apostles creed. So, yep basically a class on Father, Son, and then Holy Spirit. But I remember in that first class reading Luther's excellent work, uh, what Luther said was probably the best book that he ever wrote, which was called The Bondage of the Will. And I remember reading that And I I might go back and talk a little bit about how I got to be a reader and love reading because I had just uh, told you a few minutes ago that I didn't read anything when I was Mm -hmm. in high school. But by the time I'm in seminary, I'm loving reading and I'm asking this question about what's up with our experience with God and and what I was really wrestling with, especially coming out of the Pentecostal church was, you know, Pentecostals really stressed this this immediate experience with God. And they put a lot of emphasis on it. But what I had come to experience is that there were a lot of times where, though I wanted a direct experience from God, where I wanted to see a miracle or where I wanted to see uh, some very clear sign that God was speaking to me and telling me what I should do with my life or whatever, I was coming up against this experience where it seemed like God was silent, right, or when I read the this bondage of the will, I realized that Luther talks about how God is hidden, yeah, and that was a mind-blowing experience for me that other Christians had experienced what what is called the hiddenness of God, and it's actually a theme that the scriptures itself. Uh, go into quite a bit of detail on. There are questions in the scriptures that are just really hard. Uh, a passage like Jacob, I have loved Esau, I have hated, or and and that from the womb, right? right? So it almost seems like God hates Esau right from even before he's born, or or this other passage that's really hard is God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Well, that 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 sounds scary to me like if god hardens my heart to the point that he pushes me away from him what how am i supposed to think about that and so as i'm wrestling with all these questions like the silence of god and i feel like is god against me because he's he's somehow become hidden and silent and all of a sudden in in the bondage of the will luther begins to make a shift from what he calls the hidden God, which is the God that we don't preach. We don't go around. We we have no command, uh, Luther says, to preach that God, the hiddenness of God. What What we have been commanded to preach is God revealed in Christ. Right. And so Luther would say, when you are afraid that God has become silent or hidden, you should flee to Christ because that is where... You see who God is crystal clear, mm-hmm. and it's not it's not hard to understand. Uh, any child can understand that Jesus came to this earth, died for our sins, and rose again uh, as lo- as our Lord. That is that was such a beautiful thing for me, and it really it really turned me on to the deep theology that sometimes happens, right. and how yet radically practical it is and how it intersects these deep questions that we're asking about our experiences with God. So that was a a profound experience for me here at the seminary. Another big experience of studying theology was actually an undergrad, where a professor, Angus Manouge, at Concordia, Wisconsin, teaching uh, philosophy—he's a a great uh, British man— so he's got this great British accent, but I loved studying philosophy with him, and uh, he had me do read as an independent study uh, the book Augustine's Confessions. Right. And when I read Augustine's Confessions, it was it was all the questions that I was wrestling with, maybe maybe two or three notches higher uh, in thinking than what I was thinking at the time as a college student, but. I could come alongside it and say, holy cow, this guy who lived in the fourth century was asking the same kind of questions that I'm asking about my experiences with God. And that experience of reading that book, and I read it all the way through from cover to cover, that was like, whoa, I think I can do this. I think I can dive deeper into theology and dive deeper into my own understanding of god my own experiences with god and how i interpret those and and what the scriptures have to say about those that point on then it was just like yeah give me more so i went to obo orzel and studied a year there i stayed and did some stm work but i did not come into the seminary this like a whiz kid that just loves studying i might be a nerd now but i would be proud to say that I don't think that I was when I came to seminary. Uh,
1: the the same, you know, for me, especially when I first got to seminary, was uh, the process of becoming a pastor. Yeah. And then by the time I left, especially after my time, you talk about systematics having a, being in England where you're the foreigner, but having a, a a default way of talking about scripture. Yeah. Was was everything like you're saying this but this is what we mean as lutherans now let me break it down for you because uh, i remember one of my history classes uh this guy named richard rex he's he's a big time reformation historian and i didn't challenge him in class i'm not foolish enough foolish enough to do this but one day in class he we were we were talking about luther and he said luther would say that works are futile and anybody can challenge me on that. And he looked over at us, like the Lutheran kids session. I was like, well, clearly like you've been thinking about this and you've just ambushed me. I'm not, I'm not going to challenge you today, but I, I just ended up writing a paper on it. And, uh, you, you know, Luther, it's, it's one of those incomplete thoughts, right? Luther would say works are futile for your own personal salvation, but not for the yeah. salvation of your neighbor, meaning that the good works that you do as a Christian prove your faith to your neighbor, and that by proving your faith to your neighbor, they might come to know Jesus. Yeah, uh, because they exactly. might ask, why are you doing this good thing to me in a terrible, broken, and sinful world? Oh, by the way, this is why, because I believe in this guy Jesus, and, and you know, I don't always do the right thing, but I try to do the right thing type deal. Uh, and Luther actually got that way of thinking from Augustine.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, and
1: talking about this history and tradition. And so by the time I had gotten home from Westfield House, I was like, man, like, I, I'm a knowledge person. Like, the the science, like, you know, when I was young, I'm talking about growing and learning about things. You know, I used to be a theistic evolutionist mm-hmm. deep the science. Science has all the answers. Uh, God is real. But, but the people who are talking about six-day creation, they just don't understand how the world works, right? And then, I took a microbiology course and the whole mechanism of evolution. It's one of those things where like as a reasonable person, like to some extent, I understand how you get there. It just doesn't make sense to me. I refuse to believe it. It's just, it's just ends up being nonsense. It's broken and makes radical assumptions. And and it kind of threw me for a loop because then I had to ask myself, what do I believe in? And years of searching, rereading scripture, Genesis 1. Oh. All right. Six days. This is God we're talking about. He can do whatever he wants. I'm okay with that. Uh, but the long story is, you know, I, I had no intention of pursuing any degree after my MDiv, but now I want to pursue a PhD. Not because not because it'll make me, like, being a reverend doctor does sound good, right? Right. But also, you know, just growing more in knowledge just, just makes us better as a church when we uh, take time for ourselves to to get deeper understanding of who God is. And again, what he has to say to us, his children and his creation is jazz. It's great. I love it. Well, talking about learning, Ben, we're we're in a a different season of life called the season of COVID-19, which has been a a, a challenging year for the world. Uh, I mean, it's created tons of barriers. Naturally divided us because we can't come in contact with people who are outside of our home bubbles because fear of spreading the disease. Well, I mean, well, again, can't, you shouldn't is probably the better way of saying that. Right. But but there are still things to be learned in this season. It, it, we'd be remiss as a side if we walked away in 2021 or 2022, whenever the pandemic ends, and just move on with life. What have you personally learned in the season of COVID 19?
0: Yeah, for me, you know, I think this whole season of COVID-19, where a lot of things have been canceled, and... You're not, I'm not talking
1: about canceled culture. You're just talking about, like, events being canceled. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> events
0: being canceled. The cancel culture is a whole, whole different thing. Uh, and that is a thing, but a, a whole different thing. Yeah, a whole different now, thing. these events that have been canceled, and I I, I was doing a lot of travel before covid all of that travel got canceled so i've found myself with a lot more free time than and and not being on the road and such so what what this this season for me has been is sort of like in in the scriptures there's this year of jubilee yeah. in the old testament where every 49 years there would be a a huge reset button where the 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 fields would be un Uh, farmed for an entire year and you just kind of you'd eat whatever whatever comes up naturally and you you were supposed to uh kind of put all debts back to zero so that nobody owed anything uh, to anybody again and this that's for me what this this year has felt like is this year of reset and so there's pessimists that out there that are saying how horrible this whole pandemic is. And, and in a lot of ways, that's absolutely right. I mean, we've lost a lot of people. Yeah. And uh, a lot of people have have lost their lives uh, much sooner than they probably would have because of COVID-19. And some people very tragically have lost their lives, right? So I don't want to make light of that. It's been an awful experience for people that have lost loved ones. Uh, but there, there are some people out there that are trying to find a silver lining and I, I don't know if this is a silver lining or not, but it is something to give thanks for is just the time to have, uh, to be able to spend time with the people that I love. So, uh, spending time with my family, uh, some of those people live outside of uh, St. Louis here. So, uh, recently did a zoom call with my parents, uh, recently, uh, on my birthday, I did a zoom call with the people, some people that were at my wedding and they're, I haven't talked to them in 20 years. So for the first time in a long time, I actually have time just to spend on relationships. And that has been, uh, that's been really a positive thing in the midst of all the craziness of, of this uh, pandemic. How about for you?
1: yeah well you know it's a lot of those things like i i i've had jobs calls where where travel was required recently um and so same thing i have spent a lot of weekends on the road away from my family uh my kids are are now uh seven four and, and five and especially in those early years you you get to you you appreciate the time you have with them uh, just because that's the time you have with them, but you know, once once school got canceled and they started learning from home, and then we started working from home. You know, at first it was juggling the days, and like the first couple of weeks was a nightmare. And then it's like, okay, we can go crazy during this pandemic, or we can get our work done and start doing things as a family. And so, you know, on a, on a Wednesday before we moved into our, our current house our subdivision had a lake and things like that we'd get up do walks around um our neighborhood it, it our subdivision had a lake which i just said <laughs> but but one day there was a, a dragonfly there was either molting and sh- shedding its current shell, or maybe it had just become a full-grown dragonfly. But we sat there, and, me and Johnny in particular, we sat there and watched it for for 30 minutes, struggle on the ground, uh, and just do a thing as it began to learn how to fly. And it's like, man, uh, you know, I, I would have never seen that before, because walking around the neighborhood after work before was, felt exhausting. Um, and it just kind of reinvented this concept of home for me, because uh, as a military also, I, we moved a lot, um yeah. and so meaningful friendships, w- which you know, we once my dad retired changed. I, I have a core group of friends. Also, had been in my wedding and things like that. You just get to appreciate. I, I just I I learned how to appreciate certain things about family that that maybe I just hadn't quite a, fully appreciated yet, and maybe it just fast forwarded things for me a little bit a, in a good way. Um, yeah. You know, and then as we were doing that, you know, me and especially Dorothy is super family orientated. And for us, family goes beyond blood. And we started to think about other people uh, that we know and care about in the pandemic. It's like, OK, we're looking around. I have Dorothy. We have our three kids. Uh, uh, and yeah. so we're not alone. But how about our single friends that are having to quarantine by themselves? What are they going through? What are they struggling with? Are they doing OK? Um, and it just makes you, again, uh, for me, the pandemic has really made me rethink about all the people in my life and really trying to be engaged and involved with people on a deeper level. And so th- just all this slowing down stuff, um, learning from it, growing from it, you know, what, what's really important, you know, at some point the pandemic will end and we'll re-enter another fast paced uh, travel bound life. But, but again, hopefully we don't lose some of the things that we've we've gained even in in this tough time. In this episode, we, we began by looking at Jesus learning in the temple and how important and critical it was for him to do that, A, to become part of us, but also to show his desire for us to also learn and grow in the same way he did. And as we continue in this podcast series, hopefully we learn and grow and you learn and grow with us. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Under the Fig Tree. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus shows his followers how to care for his people. Oftentimes, this includes sharing the word in intimate moments of personal conversation like the Samaritan woman at the well. At other times, it's sharing the word with crowds like the Sermon on the Mount. Sometimes it's just being there for people when they are experiencing the worst moments of life like when Jesus was there for Jairus when his daughter died.
0: It's gathering his disciples around a table of bread and wine to hear, this is my body, this is my blood. Whether it's as a deaconess sharing the word with the sick, or as a pastor preaching the word and administering the sacraments, being there for people at these intimate moments in life is something that Jesus is calling many more people to do. In Under the Fig Tree, we want to bring you into these moments with us, and maybe you begin to see yourself in one of these roles or feel yourself being called into service of the church. If you want to find out more about what it means to be a pastor or deaconess, visit us at csl.edu. And of course, keep listening to Under the Fig Tree.